So last week, the information held its annual Women in Tech, Media, and Finance event. We call it WTF for short. It was a few days of speakers, leaders in their industries, who were describing some of the biggest trends they're seeing, challenges they're facing, and advice for others. This week on the podcast, we wanted to highlight two interesting speakers that we featured. The first we have is Lorene Powell-Jobs. She is a familiar name to people in the tech industry, but also a very private person. She's a billionaire philanthropist who serves as the president of Emerson Collective, a nonprofit that focuses on policy and social change. In this episode, we are looking at two parts of her talk with Jessica Lesson, uh, who is our founder at The Information. One is her work on voting access, uh, obviously a hugely important initiative with the presidential election bearing down on us. In the talk, she made her endorsement for president, though probably wouldn't be a shock to anyone who's paying attention. Uh, She also talked about her ownership of The Atlantic, which is the political news magazine. In the second chat we have here is with Jenna Lyons, who is a fashion designer most known for her time atop J. Crew. She is the founder of a new beauty brand, and she talked to Jessica about her experience in building something new and from the ground up. So we'll be back next week with our more regularly formatted episode, but today, enjoy some highlights from the WTF event. I am especially excited to be joined virtually today um, by Laureen Powell-Jobs, the founder of Emerson Collective and just a force in so many uh, social justice, philanthropic, and other issues of our time. So, uh, Laureen, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jessica. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with the election. Why not? You know, it's top of mind for everyone. You personally have been um, very involved. Tell us what you've been up to. So this is how we think about it. We're in the middle of a pandemic and we want, uh, as Americans, as many people as possible to vote in a presidential election. However, given the constraints of a pandemic, the safest and most responsible way to vote would be where you're not proximate to other people and not necessarily touching common surfaces, et cetera. And so so vote by mail or absentee voting, which is the same thing where you actually fill out your ballot at home is the safest and most responsible way to vote. So we would assume that this should be supported congressionally and by the White House in every way possible. But in fact, that's not what we're seeing. We actually have seen the Trump administration do everything it can right now to deny access to voting, including bringing over 40 lawsuits against states with the intent to actually make voting more complicated and harder, especially for specific groups of people, minority voters and young voters. And furthermore, the president has said directly that the greatest risk to his reelection is that they don't win their lawsuits. Uh, That he said it puts the election at risk if we don't win. And, And anyone following this knows that uh, Louis DeJoy was put in as the postmaster general. He has had no experience. He did a big reorganization a couple of months before an election when we expect unprecedented numbers of vote by mail. And they have constrained post, post office hours. They got rid of sorting and letter collection boxes. So it's the opposite direction. The other option is for people to take their ballots and bring them to drop boxes. Now, drop boxes have been used for decades. These are state-run, county-approved 
drop boxes that allow for people to drop off their ballot. Um, there are state after state after state that have now contested the use of drop boxes. So for example, um, the state of Pennsylvania now has sued to remove all drop boxes. The state of Iowa has said drop boxes can only be used inside county offices. So you actually have to go in and, and find the drop box that's inside that actually um, defeats the purpose of a drop box. Uh, New Hampshire is requiring that if you fill out your ballot at home, you have to go and hand it directly personally to an election official. Again, it renders a drop box moot. So, so all of this we're seeing is a deliberate effort to disenfranchise some voters and to make voting less, not more accessible. If we look at voting in person, um, we can look at the examples of the primaries in Georgia and Wisconsin and see what happened. There was less, less access to voting places. There were broken voting machines. There were lines where people were waiting hours and hours. And in an assessment done in Georgia, it was found that in majority African-American communities in Georgia, the wait time was 51 minutes to vote. And in the majority white neighborhoods in Georgia, the wait time was six minutes. So, and, and that was just one primary and, uh, and one example of the kind of disenfranchisement that's happening. How, how are you feeling about it? I know that you, are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling concerned? I mean, you're- I'm, re I'm very concerned. I, I think um, any time that in a democracy, the, 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 the party that's in power is trying to make it very difficult for people's voice to be heard, for their vote to count, everyone should be concerned. So I'm really concerned. I mean, if we look at 2016, at the malfeasance from Russia, really there hasn't been a direct um, consequence or, or even an acknowledgement of the kind of foreign intervention in our elections to prevent that from happening. I'm not even talking about external forces. I'm talking about internally, domestically, we are sabotaging the ability of our fellow citizens to vote. That's enormously concerning. And I think, I think all of us, as we pay more and more attention to the election and what's going on, will feel equally alarmed. This seems a silly question, but have you endorsed, endorsed Biden for president or are you, are you operating at that level or you're focusing on the issues primarily? I, I, I would. <laughs> I'm, I'm hereby endorsing there Joe Biden. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think endorsements um, from individuals necessarily move anyone's uh, conscience or, or sense of morality. I think each one of us understands what's at stake and most Americans really desire very similar things. Um, and, and it's kind of core to our American values. And uh, one of those core values is that our vote is our voice. And by restricting the vote, we are restricting the voice. Lorraine, I, I wanted to ask you about the media business. A little while back, you became the majority owner of The Atlantic, which is mm -hmm. doing a phenomenal job during the pandemic and always. And tell us a bit first, why the media business? Why invest and partner up with with those companies? 
it's really hard to find a, a vibrant business model for for-profit media. So our involvement in media is not to turn a profit. It's actually an honor for, for me and my team to be associated with some of the greatest journalists in the country and in the world. Uh, and I think it's essential to, to, in this time especially, to help shore up the business model and bring in patient capital while that transition is happening so that these, the outlets that I think are publishing really important, truly excellent journalism can keep doing their journalism as the transition is figured out. It's important that everyone know that great journalism should not come for free. Uh, this, is, this is a civic good. This should be supported by everyone who consumes it um, willingly and generously. So, so I think you know, we're involved both from a for-profit model and a non-profit model for local journalism. Uh, has, which has completely, you know, it, which as a model has completely imploded. The nonprofit structure seems to be the most sustainable and, and the one that should be embraced because uh, you know better than I, but I think in the last 15 years, we've lost over 2000 local newspapers across the country. And, and those that are still uh, operating are existing on a much thinner budget and a much smaller staff. And, um, and that, that is not healthy for a vibrant democracy. I feel like there's, there's so much, you do so much, you're passionate about so many things and um, you like to put your, your causes out there and not always you, but I guess you're, in, you're very related. <laughs> but I'm just curious, I'd love you know, the people in the room to know something about you that you wish more people knew. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, I, I'm very devoted to my kids and I am grateful for both of them. I'm also fun loving and I love a good dance party. Probably one of the first things that I will do at the end of the pandemic when it's safe <laughs> to, to be next to people is go listen to live party. music. I have to, I love live music so much. It really feeds my soul and I miss it a lot. I am thrilled to be here with Jenna Lyons, an iconic fashion designer who's responsible for turning J. Crew uh, into the retail powerhouse that it is today. Um, Jenna's received pretty much every award and accolade that exists in um, the creative and fashion world. Um, and several years ago, found herself at a crossroads. Um, leaving uh, the world of J. Crew and uh, the traditional retail business uh, for new pastures that are um, more what's up our alley here at the information. We have some experience with that. So, um, Jenna, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I have to say it's funny that you said pastures because I used to joke that when my time at J. Crew was over, they'd put a cowbell on me and just send me out to pasture. So, here I am. <laughs> I was evoking a different meaning of the word. I know. But, uh, the green <laughs> field. Um, what's it like to go from I mean, running, you know, huge teams of, of people um, to being a founder? Take us inside that. How did you get the funding for this venture? It's a little bit like going to camp 
you know, I think I went. I've never heard it described that way before. That's a new I, one. I like it. Well, I, like I guess, it. like, there's something, you know, immersive about being in camp and also really bonding. And there's just a different intimacy and, um, and, and messiness and kind of, in, and that I think has been really, has been hard, but also been really fun. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm the one changing the toilet paper in the bathroom when it runs out and that's okay. Uh, at the same time, you know, I am getting to do things I've never done before. I also was scared. You know, I think that I grew up in a corporation. I grew up in a structure. I, I didn't know if I could do it. I was unsure that I could literally take something from nothing and have mm -hmm. it go out into the world. And I, I, it's a strange time at 50 to actually decide, well, I'm not 50, but I'm a little bit over 50, but <laughs> we won't talk about um, But to be starting something completely from scratch, it's the thing you kind of think about, oh, you do that when you're really young and you have tons of energy. Um, at the same time, what's amazing is that I actually know what the bar should look like. And I'm not, I have had that experience of saying, well, that's not good enough. Or I know what customer, how customers are going to respond. That's not okay. How do we work around that? Um, and having, had a lot of experience with direct connection to customers and um, and what the creative process really could and should look like, but then also being on the business side and understanding how responsible you have to be. It, it's a unique place to be. I, you know, who knows if it'll work? <laughs> it why, might not work. Um, why beauty? I think um, I was really in love with the process at J.Crew. We talked just as much about the look of the girls and their hair and makeup for particularly, you know, we had J. Crew, Madewell and Factory. And so part of what my job was, was to also make sure that they felt different. So to make sure that Madewell didn't really look like J. Crew, J. Crew didn't look like Madewell, J. Crew didn't look like Factory. How did we really keep them separate? And a lot of that was obviously in the clothes, but it really did come down to beauty, little things like we in Madewell, we avoided red lip. We let the hair be a little bit more tousled, you know, in J. Crew, we would let the girls be more polished. We would put a smoky eye on them every once in a while or a polished red lip. And, you know, even if their hair was pulled back, it was a little bit of, like, there were things that we did to parse them apart. We kept factory just a little bit more everyday pretty. You know, it was very much about who is the girl, who's the customer, what do we want to say to her? And I really enjoyed that part. But the thing I loved about it was, you know, A, we got a lot of incredible response when we would talk about anything from a red lip to a eye gloss, you know, to a nail polish. Um, but in addition to that, I think what I liked about it was there wasn't that same moment of, you can't really disappoint somebody telling them how to wear a red lipstick, but you can definitely disappoint somebody if they're, you know, five, two and don't have any boobs and you're trying to sell the same item to somebody who's six foot tall and has big boobs. Like it's really hard to make those two things work. And I felt like I was disappointing people all the time. There were constantly customers who were dissatisfied. And that is a really after a long, after a while, it gets to you, um, and you start to feel like, God, am I really doing anything good here? And so, there's something really nice about beauty, especially if you focus it on no, not one particular look. You know, how do you do that for multiple people? And um, you know, we're in the time of masks and Zoom, and you know, Thinking this is important. So, I, I want to ask you a little bit just about the retail landscape, and I guess also the marketing landscape right now. Yeah. Tech is really has obviously upended both. Um, maybe maybe on the retail side, um, you're going to launch a direct to consumer beauty brand. It seems like every few weeks there's something new in that space. Yeah. What do you make of the D2C ecosystem? Is it 
Is it here to stay and what, what impact is it having on the landscape? There is no replacement for a direct connection to your customer. That is just, it, there will never will be. And I think that's something I learned so deeply from Nikki Drexler and my time with him is that, you know, at the end of the day, it's the customer that you want to connect with. And when you have a direct line to them, you don't have to worry about, you know, the challenge with, with wholesale in general is that you can spend all this time nurturing and curating your brand and wanting it to be, you know, you know, wanting to speak about it in this way, wanting to nurture it in this way, wanting to be presented this way. And then it gets into a store that's not yours. And then all of a sudden you are not able to control that exchange between the customer and your product. That's hard. So that is a piece of it. Um, that being said, people want connection. And what I worry about and the thing that I see that I think makes me incredibly anxious is that there is value in, in, experience and there's value in you know interesting enough everybody wants to do experiential things now pop-ups and having you have come into and have an experience and i think that is important to people malls are really thinking about how do they engage a customer in a, in a different way because if you look at some of the malls that are outside of new york city or outside of the united states they're far more engaging you know they're there's you can pet a penguin and you can ride a wave and you can go on a snow but the fact of the matter is people are looking for more and so i think particularly here in the united states i think we're going to have to rethink how we approach retail how do we engage people because people do want to have connection and they do you know even my son who's almost 14 who spends so much time on his phone you know enjoys going out and doing things and going to a store when the store is really incredible but i think we're you know rents are so high it's making it incredibly hard for you know a lot of these stores to survive and the level of creativity that we're expecting is expensive and that's not actually helpful either. I would love it if every store in Soho would like literally give a fraction of the rent and let smaller and only bring small businesses in bookstores and cafes and you know great restaurants and retail because it's just not it's not the same. It makes me, you know, I want them all to stay. I'm very nervous about what's happening right now. I know it will shift back, I'm assuming I believe that, but it's definitely gives me pause. What what do you think will shift it back? What what are you hoping for? I mean, I believe, you know, I remember, you know, I've been, I'm old enough to have been through many waves of, you know, things coming down and then things coming back up. I do think people are deeply passionate and particularly here in New York are, are excited about, you know, opportunity. And I think anytime there is a deep shift down, it does provide opportunity and it does also make people wake up and think we have to do something differently. So I'm hoping that that will be the case. And I believe that there is some opportunity there. And I, even with one of the consulting projects I'm doing right now, there is a lot of hope in the way that they're approaching um, the process to bring quality stores back in and not have everything, you know, there's nothing wrong with big box retail. However, if you want to create and drive traffic, there is no way you're going to do that if every store is the same. So if you are going to a mall and you're seeing a J. Crew, a Banana Republic, a Pottery Barn, or Williams Nova, and then you go to Soho and you see the same thing, there's no motivation to go. And so there has to be sort of a, a bigger thought process. I do believe that that will start to shift. And I'm hopeful that some of the brands that are able to stick it out through this hard time will be stronger coming out of it and will have, you know, a bigger say. I just think, you know, it, it's, it's a very strange time. <laughs> That is our episode for the week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, thanks to Ariella Markowitz for producing. See you back next week.